the longer I live, the, the more um, power I realize are in, in words and how we can easily misrepresent the Lord by certain words that we choose um, to describe him that may um, in some ways depreciate who he is. And one of those words that I try not to ever put um, with the name of God in any of its different, um, well, names, like Jesus or God, is, is the verb need. You know, need, like God needs us, or God needs more people fully devoted for him, or God needs us to worship him. Because in, in, in our use of the word need, and I can't think of a single um, exception to this, the word need, as we use it in English, always communicates a sense of impairment, uh, deficiency, flaw, um, or lack. I, I can't think of a single sentence where you'd use the word need where that wasn't uh, the case or the implication. You know, if you, if you say, hey, I, I, uh, I need a vacation, it kind of implies that you're tired, you're exhausted, and you're in need of a time of relaxation and refreshment because you lack strength or you lack that sense of rest, so you want a vacation. Or if you say, man, I, I really need a new car, well, that implies that your old car doesn't work very well and you need a new one. If you say, I need an Advil right now, it implies that you have pain somewhere. So the way that we use the word need is, is always um, implies a sense of lack or deficiency, which is why I've tried. And I've, I, at different points, I've caught myself, and yeah, really, God needs, and I have to stop myself and say, I'm t- wait a second, God doesn't need anything. Um, we need God, he doesn't need me. Because using that word gives the false implication that God is, is needy or deficient in some ways. And I think you and I both know, based upon what's been revealed in Scripture, that God is the polar opposite of deficient. Um, that he is everything. He's fullness. He's overflowing. Um, creation exists not because God has a vacuum in his heart, but because he's overflowing in love to the Son and Son to the Father. He's, he's always self-giving. That's who he is. Um, he's never in need of, of, of anything. But now here's the thing, is that while we may say that in our formal doctrinal statements, that God doesn't need anything, that God is self-sufficient and overflowing, omniscient, omnipotent, and all those omnis, oftentimes in our regular vocabulary, everyday talk, sometimes in popular theology or even cliches, our words often betray a very different view. That is to say, um, and I'll just give some examples here, I think I've used this before, but it's worth repeating. I was in town, I was driving past a, a church, and they had a reader board out front, you know, where you put little fancy little statements and things to make people think, and, and the reader board went something like this. It said, if, uh, if you don't know Jesus, you need God, and, and if you do need Jesus, well, then God needs you, you know? And I just thought, I, I understand the heart behind it, but I just winced and thought, man, that communicates that, you know, God's like pining away, waiting for people to come join his rank so his kingdom work will be done. And it communicates a sense of deficiency and and creates in the people who read or hear that a sense of pity or sympathy towards God. Um, Sometimes preachers will use things like that, saying, God needs you out on the field, you know? And and it almost appeals to that sense of pity or sympathy in us to then, well, I got to do something to help God out. That is to say, our our, our formal creeds and um, our sound but it's often our functional or working creeds that are what I think and many would say are fundamentally pagan. I, pagan, I mean by, you know, the view of the gods of Zeus and Apollo and Hades and Demeter and all of those other in the pantheon of, of false gods. 
in the pagan view of, of divinity, they all have, in some sense, a need, a deficiency, and therefore a requirement for human hands to somehow serve them, either by their worship or by their sacrifices to build them temples. So that's the pagan view of God is that he may indeed, or they may indeed be gods, but they have deficiencies and, and they need to be served by human worship. And what's revealed in the scripture is that Yahweh is a God who stands completely 100% apart from every other view of God. And he declares of himself, um, this is in the book of Acts, that I do not dwell in a temple made with hands. And I am not served as though I need anything. Completely and 100% self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do anything. There's absolutely no dependence, not even a fraction of a percentage point of him upon us. And it's one of those things that we really need to recapture is that the grandeur of God's self-sufficiency. Um, and it's one of those, those great truths about God that comes to light in the passage we're going to look at in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, this is such an important chapter of the Old Testament that some people have called it the ideological summit. The summit is the peak of the Old Testament. Because it, 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 it records for us God's covenantal promises to David. There are two men who receive these gargantuan promises um, by God in the Old Testament. One is Abraham, and the other is David. And out of these promises that we're about to read really comes all of the messianic hope expectation um, through the prophets and the psalmists and the rest of the Old Testament. It comes from this place. This is its source. This is the root. This is the fountain of messianic expectation. These promises that God makes to David. And in them, God reveals who he is in a way that I think just should, if the Spirit is speaking to our hearts, cause us just to go, that's amazing. The chapter starts with David, King David, at rest. If you've been following with us, he's had a very tumultuous life um, so far. But in the last few chapters, we we saw him crowned king. He is now um, king over a unified Israel. He has established a capital in the the city of Jerusalem. Uh, He has localized worship of Yahweh um, in Jerusalem by bringing the Ark of the Covenant, like the, the physical pledge of God's presence, into Jerusalem. So everything's where it should be, all the pieces are in place. And it says at the very beginning here that David was at rest for the first time. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. It it doesn't take a... um, doctor's degree in interpretation to figure out what's going on here. David's at a place of rest. He's living in a palace with cedar walls, and, and it's a beautiful palatial place where he and his queens live. Then he looks outside, and he realizes the Lord is, is in a tent. Now, there's a huge disparity here. You know, he's at the, the penthouse suite at the Ritz-Carlton, and the Lord is dwelling in a, a yurt. You know what a yurt is? Like up in Yosemite, it's like this little thing with, with canvas over the top. That's where the Lord is, and David's in a palatial palace, and Naturally, David wants to do something. He wants to build something that would more adequately reflect the grandeur of Yahweh and who he's been in his life. He wants to build him a house, a temple, 
a place where God's name would dwell. And his friend Nathan, um, a confidant, a prophet, man of God, probably a friend, says, well, David, do what's in your heart. Now, at this point, the prophet's not speaking the words of the Lord. He's speaking his opinion. He'll build the house of the Lord. But the Lord is going to send his word to Nathan the prophet, and the prophet is going to go to David, and in essence, he's going to say, no. You're not going to build me a house. But he says no in a way that reveals the glory of his character and why he's worth worshiping and why he is independent and not dependent on anything we do. Check out this answer of of how the Lord responds to this this desire on David's part to build him a, a, a temple. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Now he kind of rehearses history here in verse 6. But it's all the word of the Lord. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, or literally the Hebrew is walked, walked with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord saying, I wasn't disappointed. I never asked anybody else to build me anything. And it's interesting. What, what, the, what, the, the picture that arises of God's heart from what's said here is just simply astounding. Um, when, when God rescued his people out of Egypt, an act of grace and love, you know, I'm crushing Pharaoh's army. Well, they wandered for 40 years, and the only thing they could live in as a nomadic, um, wandering people are tents. They couldn't take with them stone houses. They took tents. So when the Lord gave instruction um, to Moses, this is what I want you to build for me, what did he tell him to build? Build me a tent too. I'm going to dwell the same way my people dwell. I'm going to dwell in the midst of my people. Now, I mean, the, the nation of Israel, at the very beginning, they were all campers, all right? They were campers. And the Lord basically says, pitch me a tent so that I can dwell and live amongst my people. Now contrast that. The pagan gods are, are, are vying in competition for the most glorious and opulent temples to display their superiority. Go to, you know, the Acropolis. You can see some of it, um, even to this day. Instead, the Lord decides, I, I'll be in a tent. I will dwell in a tent, in a yurt, to be with my people now. Like, what, what kind of God does that? Think about it. This is so backwards from the ancient theologies of, of God Almighty, lofty, holy, transcendent, the creator of all things, the source of all life, the only uncreated creator, is living in a tent with his people. Who's the one who's coming down amidst his people to serve who? To guide them by his presence, to protect them with his presence, to provide manna and water in the presence. It's Yahweh, the God who dwells amongst his people, who serves the needs of his people. He is not served with human hands. He rather serves the needs of the people he loves. Now that should almost instantly make us think of other places in the Bible. Because that's the heart of God, to dwell in a tent with his people. Hint, hint. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, but God. 
And the word became flesh and tented among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. This is the heart of God. In the Old Testament, he showed himself in a tent or dwelt in a tent to be amongst his people. But his, his main plan and his ultimate aim is to tent himself in human flesh, becoming one of us. To dwell, live amongst his people. And not just for a time, but forever and ever and ever. He, he united himself to human flesh to be amongst his people. That testifies to the grace and the love of Yahweh. And it, you can see how Jesus is just the full expression of, of this Old Testament idea. And uh, that stuff you know, just moves me about the Lord. I, I find it... Um, Uh, how do I say this? Uh, logically, um, aesthetically, uh, confusing as to why people don't believe in a God is so accommodating to us. And that, that's, comes, that's what, 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 what basically this first part of the answer is, is that Yahweh chooses humble accommodation to walk amongst his broken people. By contrast to the gods who were vying for these opulent stone temples. It's interesting, stone temples don't move, do they? They sit in one place. And yet God chose a mobile, transient form of dwelling so that he could walk with his people. Who serves who? God serves his people. Binds us of the words of Jesus. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Give my life as a ransom for the people that I love. That's the heart of Yahweh. He's not the taker, he's the giver of life. But there's more to it than that, because the voice of the Lord is about to rapid-fire machine gun, just sputter out an entire slurry of promises that are overwhelming. Let's read this. I wanted to read it in its entirety. Sorry for the small print, but um, in a moment you'll see why I did it this way. So if you can't see it, look at your Bibles or listen, okay? Um, This is the word of the Lord. Now, therefore, say, uh, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have went and have cut off your enemies from before you. Now, all those are past graces in the way in which God has worked in David's life, taking him from pasture to prince. Now he switches tenses and it moves to the future. This is what I'm now going to do for you moving forward. Middle of verse 9. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall not afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Now he's going beyond the boundaries of David's death, like way beyond his death, to subsequent generations. This is verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a way of saying when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, that is your physical line, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is a rather staggering turn of events and turn of words. David comes and basically, Lord, I want to build you a physical house. The Lord's like, nope. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. You get it? David wants to do something for the Lord, and the Lord says, no, I'm going to do something for you. And your house is going to be an eternal house, and by house he means a dynasty. It will be men from your body who will reign on the throne of the kingdom that I am establishing forever and ever and ever. Now, that's a pretty big house. That's how, how God's grace is responding to David's desire to do something for the Lord. He says, no, but I'm going to do something for you. And uh, I went through and I yellowed out the, the subject of almost all the verbs in these promises. And you can hear the Lord saying, I, 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 I. You know, I took you from the pasture. You were with sheep for crying out loud um, to make you a prince. I have been with you. I have cut off your enemies. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people. I will give you rest. I will make you a house. I will raise up your offspring. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. Now who is serving who? This is a God who says, I do... I do not accept service from human hands as though I need any of you. Instead, this is what I'm going to do for you. Who's serving who? who what, what, what God is like this, but the God Yahweh, Isaiah, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? And the answer is there are none. So gracious and giving. You notice I put point two is Yahweh's promises to establish an eternal kingdom for his people. That's kind of the overarching idea of these promises if you were to distill it down to one thing. But you can also break that idea of kingdom into three little parts, you know, that's worth reflecting on. Um, One has to do with the king himself or the throne. That God basically says your throne is going to endure forever and ever. That place of authority, that place of rule, um, he says... Now, if we follow history from David on, you realize that the passage is probably immediately focused on Solomon, David's uh, first son, not firstborn, but his son that would take the crown, who would, by the way, build a physical temple for the Lord in God's timing. Um, And the reason I say that is because you notice there's that little section in there that that talks about... um, that talks about him disciplining... um, David's sons uh, when they commit iniquity, which would tell us that he has at least sinful kings in mind. And um, David's line did, in fact, um, continue to rule in Jerusalem for almost four centuries. And, And the rest of Old Testament history shows how God has disciplined, but never was there not a king on the throne in Jerusalem until the people went into exile because of their sin. But God did not renege on his promise because we know after 400 dark years of no prophecy, angels sang glory to God in the highest when the son of David was born in Bethlehem to a virgin by the name of Mary. 
who would live his life and offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, rise again, and he is the heir, the capital T-H-E-H-E-I-A-I-R of the throne, who promises, and all this history moves in this direction, that when he returns, he makes all things right. Well, the promise goes all the way back to here. You see, first century, or excuse me, 1000 B.C., This is promised, a throne of the son of David, who ultimately finds fulfillment in in Jesus Christ, our our Lord, King, and and Messiah. By the way, just to to keep this in the big picture of the Bible, um, this was God's original design for Adam. God said, you shall exercise dominion over the earth. That's a rule, benevolent, careful, loving rule, a rule which was lost but now God promises to restore through the son of David, king. So he promises an eternal throne or eternal king. There also in this passage is the promise of an eternal peace, which still to this day has not been experienced by the people of God. We read in verse 10 where he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. Now, Curious, people are already in Israel. David's already in Jerusalem, so why speak of it in the future? Like, I will plant them. In one sense, they've already been planted, but he's pointing to something bigger and farther ahead. We'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. As he's envisioning a a, a planting of God's people in a place where they are free from disturbance, free from oppression, free from injustice, which means freedom from sin. This is the shalom of of the Lord, a, a place of peace. It's Eden recaptured. See, this promise is going way far into the future, into the new creation, where we, with David and with others who have received and trusted not only in the promise, but in the one who fulfilled the promise, namely the King Jesus, where we will one day hear, and I'm looking forward to this because I'm tired of conflict. I am tired of injustice. I'm tired of pain. I'm tired of seeing the people I love ravaged by divorce, by arguments. I'm looking forward to this. To hear the voice from the throne, Revelation chapter 21, say, Behold, The dwelling place of God, or Yahweh, is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, dwelling in one place. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be crying, nor mourning, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Goes back to here. Because it's just amazing magnitude of these promises. An eternal king who will bring in an eternal peace which we so desperately long for and certainly is not going to come from anybody in Washington. But then one more little piece of this um, which is worth noting is that he promises to be a father. I love that. Yahweh promises to be a father to David's son. And for his steadfast love never to depart or reject 
or separate him from the love of God. See, that, that's the last part. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. That steadfast love, to me, that is the anchor of David's theology and what he loves most about God, which is why he sings about it all the time in the Psalms. I bow down before your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I think that's Psalm 138. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and hope in his steadfast love. Over and over and over again, that is the anchor point. And I think in part it comes to this promise, I will love you and my love will never die. Of course, you know, fast forward, Jesus is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The beloved, the son of God, a father to a son who is ultimately King Jesus. That's, that's what the Lord promises. I mean, it's kind of the essence of point two there. Yahweh promises to establish his eternal kingdom for his people through an eternal king, through an eternal peace, or bringing in an eternal peace. And this last part, that is because of his eternal love. So here you have, again, I ask the question, who's serving who? Who's acting for the benevolence and salvation and redemption of Who? This doesn't picture men coming up saying, God, you're needy, deficient, you have some flaws, and I'm going to help support things. He always says, no, you're not going to build me a temple. I'm going to build you a house. And it's a magnificent, eternal house. But there's one other point I want to make about this, and it's to show that while God is indeed the one who serves the needs of the people he loves in grace and mercy, he does so still as the sovereign one who's sitting on the throne. That is, Yahweh determines the times and tasks of his kingdom work. He determines the times and the tasks. Again, verse 13, there. The Lord is telling David, you're not going to build for me a temple, but one of your sons will. And one of those sons, he says in verse 13, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That person, of course, is Solomon who in history did build a temple. Now that the people were situated in the land, they were no longer wandering. God allowed, um, permitted a temple to be built in his name, which was destroyed um, sometime later. But this is his way of saying, David, no to you, but yes to Solomon. In other words, the Lord is calling the shots, not just with the tasks, but also the times. The time is not right yet for there to be a temple in my name. It shows that God is the one who determines the ta- tasks and also the times of his kingdom work. He assigned a task to David, a task to Solomon, a task to Paul, Jim Elliot, Amy Carmichael, Billy Graham, you, me, different tasks, but they come from him and different times. Now, this is a rather humbling thing, but I think relevant for a culture which is so saturated with a sense of control and agenda. You know, well, if we build it, they will come. Or if we set out our, what we believe is our best plan for the future, well, then we are going to, by our, by our own prowess of mind and by our own strength of leadership, we are going to make this happen. And it does us well to remember. Yahweh is the one who says yes and no 
He's the one who assigns tasks and times for things to be done. And as crazy as the world may seem, and as much as it might seem to us from our little tiny minuscule perspective that the kingdom of God is languishing and God is losing the war, you need to understand from God's perspective, redemption is working right on schedule and right on time. And to trust that, he's the one who assigns the tasks and the times to do his work. The world in which we live in this kingdom work is his work. He uses us, but he in no way, shape, or form depends upon us to do it. And we're reminded of that over and over and over again where human pride is, is humbled by the simple truth that God's the one that calls his shots. Remember when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a, on, a, on a donkey, and the people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, and so forth, and the Pharisees come and say, they need to shut up. And Jesus says, if they shut up, these rocks are going to cry out, because you don't call the shots. Do you remember Jesus standing before Pilate, this humble, broken carpenter, beaten, and, and Pilate's like, why don't you talk? Don't you know I have power to, to, to kill you? And Jesus looks at him, and I probably was a, very, uh, a frightening stare when he said that, you know, you would have no authority except for my Father in heaven. My death is his shot, his call, not yours. And just a reminder, we as God's people, we, we're, we're simply recipients of the tasks that he gives us. That where God has placed you, the time and place, this generation, it's not an accident. You know, some of those names I named, their time is done. Their task is finished. The works that God had prepared ahead of time for them to do, they've accomplished them. Now it's our time. And what tasks has the Lord given us? To love him and love others or, you know, to make a difference in the context that God has sovereignly placed you? To testify to the loving rule of Christ and the new creation to come? Forgiveness of sins in his name and judgment that comes on all those who refuse to take shelter in the Son of Man, the Son of God? God has placed each of us in a place to continue that work, and, and when we die our death as believers, then our task will be done too. But just to remember, he's the one who calls the shots, assigns the tasks, and assigns the times. He is the one who serves, but he does so as the sovereign, gracious lover of his people. Now, what should that do to us, that, that the simply truth that God is self-sufficient, he is the one who comes down in a tent to live and care for his people. Um, he's the one who makes all these astounding promises to bring peace through a king uh, to his people um, and calling shots through history and assigning tasks. What are we supposed to take from this other than that he is not a God who's served by human hands? One thing it should do for us is it, should, it shouldn't create passivity. It should create a sense of... of confidence. Listen, if it's his work and he's calling the shots and redemption is right on time, then, then, then we can walk into your, you can walk into your office or your cubicle or get in your squad car, go to your classroom, knowing full well that God is God there. And know that he, you know, in his, with your surrendered faith is going to do his work. It's not a question of if or may or might. It is. It will happen. He has determined it to be so. And that should give us confidence. Now, there's this place in, in the book of Acts where, where it seems, reading between the lines, that the Apostle Paul is discouraged and he's depressed. 
he's, he's in the town of Corinth, and maybe there wasn't enough fruit. Maybe he didn't see the power of God um, and was depressed as a result of it. And that, I think, in part, is when we start to feel like God's work depends upon us, it can easily lead to a place of dis- depression or discouragement um, when things don't turn out like we envisioned them. And so the Lord comes to Paul in Acts, and he says to him, this is interesting, because again, it's just showing this is his work, he's on the throne, he's calling the shots, he's like, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be silent, but speak. That's your assigned gift, that's how you are going to operate my kingdom. Speak, do not be silent, for I am with you. And he goes on to say, in this city, there are many people who are mine. Do you hear the confidence with which Jesus speaks over the city of Corinth? There's people in this town who are destined to be part of my kingdom. They are mine. So don't shut up. Speak, because I'm with you. And if Paul doesn't speak, someone else will. Because he has people in that city. And here's you know, a reminder to Paul. I, I'm on the throne. I'm working just simply don't be afraid and do what you're supposed to do and let my, let my work work through you. Which raises an interesting question, and I'll close with this. Is, uh, how do we serve a God who is not served by human hands? Do you, do you, like, does that seem awkward to you? Like, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ, which is another word for servant, a bond servant. Um, we're told to serve the Lord. So how do we serve the Lord and keep that part without serving him in a way as though he needs anything? Yeah, you know? Like, how do you command me to do this and then you tell me that you're not served as one who needs anything? So how do we serve that way? Not only in confidence, but in joy. You know, the best picture that I can think of, and indulge the fact that it's not a perfect analogy, is what comes to my mind is four years ago, um, my youngest... Isaac, you know, he's seven and a half now. Four years ago, he was four and a half. And whenever I'd go out to mow the lawn, you know, he'd run out and say, can I mow the lawn with you? And um, I remember one time walking in and saying, hey, Isaac, I'm mowing the lawn. You want to mow the lawn with me? I finally actually gave in. And he, he just got all excited. His face lit up, and he said, yes. And he's up out of his chair, and he's running over to lawnmower. And and, um, and so I started the thing. And he's, mind you, he's, he's four and a half. Now, I don't know how your lawnmower works. I don't have a fancy riding lawnmower with a, you know, stereo surround sound and all that stuff. <laughs> but mine's just your push mower, you know? And, and it has two bars. It has a lower one and an upper one. And I, and I said, well, you hold on to this one and push, and I'll push on this one. Now, I'll tell you, you know, you got this little four, four and a half year old, and his arms are like up like this, you know, behind the thing. It made mowing my lawn two times as long, you know? Having this little body, whenever you're, you're going this way, and these little legs, you're trying not to trip on them, you know? You're just trying to straddle them, then you turn, and, and of course, these little legs, so you've got to kind of get them around and go this way. So it took forever to do it, you know? Get this little boy to help me. But he was so excited. He's just enjoying, he was pushing. But I'll tell you what, he didn't do anything for that lawnmower. And he didn't do it thinking, my dad's not quite strong enough, I think I'll lend him a hand. Oh, he just, he wanted to be a part of what I was doing. And he wanted to be with his daddy. Now, if we could get teenagers to feel that way, we'd be much better off. But, 
The fact of the matter is he was delighted to do my work with me, just in the communion of it. And you know what? It's, even though it took twice as long to mow my lawn, I loved that moment. And I, I'll never forget that memory. Because I don't want to do that anymore. But you know what? That's, I think, probably as close to the kind of service the Lord wants from us. Is, is to be able to say, Lord, you want me to do this? Um, scrub floors, uh, unlatch the, the, the sandal of your foot. It would be my pleasure and my honor to, to be even asked to do anything for you because you have loved me so much and I am simply thrilled to be in your presence and doing it with you, to fellowship in your suffering and to be with you. I, it seems to me that's the service that then he's, our Father in heaven's like, yes. I actually delight when you delight to be with me doing my work. And it brings joy to the Lord. But again, understand that the one who's pushing the lawnmower is not us. Jesus says, you want to join my lawn mowing redemptive work? Join me. Not because I need you, but because I love you and and us wanting to respond, and I want to be a part of your work. And if that's not our heart, then we've got to start over again. Like, say, Lord, what am I really doing? Like, do I really love you like I say I do or I sing that I do? When I don't really delight in doing your work and I feel like a teenager who doesn't want to do anything? Maybe we need to backtrack a little bit and rediscover the joy of just doing the Lord's work with him. Not because he needs us but because it's a joy of the soul to be about stuff that's going to last forever, to be a part of something that's transgenerational, that began a long time ago and will continue after we die, knowing that somehow all that we helped, if you can say helped, pushing the lawnmower without really doing anything, is somehow going to end up in the kingdom of God and, and, and we'll see the fruits of the work that he did with us and through us. I hope that that's your heart. And if it's not, you know, just, Lord, please restore that simple faith and love that wants to serve you, not because you need anything, but because you're just that good. Lord, I pray that over my family here, just make that spirit alive. And where there is a sense of loss of affection and desire and thrill, and excitement for being about your great and glorious work. I just pray for a genuine sense of repentance, knowing that you forgive and knowing that you restore, you revive, and you reawaken. And that's what I pray. Just, Lord, in this moment, just help us to be real with you and honest and then restore, relight the fires of our heart for you and the simplicity of serving you with joy and with love in Christ's name.